Uncovering History, a podcast of the OI. Welcome to the OI Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Townsend. I'm here with Tasha Voderstrasse again. This week, we're at the top of the research archives. We're going to talk about some interesting things today. Yes, and I'm looking forward to talking about lots of death and destruction, because after all, that's what we all want to hear, right? So following on, you know, the Scythians coming out of the countryside and murdering everyone, we're now moving on to incinerating everyone. Yay! Tasha, I have some questions. Let's go back in time. It's 2004, 2005. I'm reading Clash of Kings. That's probably not where you want to go in your time machine to watch a younger me reading Clash of Kings, but that's that's where we are today. And I'm reading Clash of Kings by George R. R. Martin, and I get to a point where Tyrion has this great idea. Stannis is coming with his army. He's coming with his navy. They're coming to King's Landing, and Tyrion has this brilliant idea to build a chain in the harbor and trap all of Stannis's ships and then use this wildfire to incinerate everything. Back then I'm thinking this is this is awesome. This is a great idea. Then a couple of years ago I'm reading history and I get to the Byzantines and I read about this big chain and all this Greek fire and I'm wondering if George R. R. Martin didn't just, you know, just and paste it into his book. Like what's what's going on here? Yeah, so I mean clearly uh both if you read the book Clash of Kings or, of course, watched the show Game of Thrones uh, at the end of season two and the Battle of Blackwater, you will have seen this in glorious technicolor that you have the ships burning up with this fire and the pyromancers and, of course, the chain trapping everyone and burning them more uh, and basically the whole fleet going up, which, of course, originally, you know, it was like when I first read about Stannis, uh, you know, I was sympathetic to him and I thought, you know, he's he's not a bad guy, but then there was that whole problem with his daughter and all that nastiness. So, of course, then we, you know, busily cheer while this all happens. But, yeah, I mean, George R. R. Martin, as we talked about last week, is clearly inspired by history uh, and, as he says, is clearly inspired by the siege of Constantinople, specifically the sieges by the uh, Umayyad army of Constantinople. If we look at that, we can see pretty much exactly where he got the ideas. So sort of in contrast to what we were talking about last week, we were looking at the Dothraki and the Scythians and we're like, yeah, mounted people, kind of similar generally, but probably was inspired by a variety of different mounted nomadic people. In this case, the parallels are very clear. What dates are we talking about here? You know, uh, last week we were talking about the Scythians, which were a part of the, the very ancient world. But but how much further along are we in history with the Byzantines here and the uh, Umayyads? And can you tell us a little bit about them? So we've moved quite a bit further in time, and we're moving into the late 7th and early 8th centuries AD. And so this was a period, much like what we were talking about last week, where there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of upheaval uh, in this period too, because basically the Byzantine Empire had stretched from basically what, you know, included Turkey, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, so Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and so forth, was a vast empire. Uh, very powerful. And then as a result of various problems, including civil wars and a Persian invasion, was left in a very vulnerable position so that in the 630s, the Arabs coming out of Arabia uh, were able to take large portions of that empire. So they suddenly became in control of Egypt, uh, ultimately of the rest of North Africa, also sort of Syria, Palestine area, 
Uh, and so suddenly they're in control of this vast empire, and this empire pushes into Persia and pushes on to Central Asia until basically they can't go any any further, and they hit up with China. So this was this massive empire which grew very quickly, very fast, and not surprisingly, they wanted to take Constantinople because Constantinople was the Byzantine capital. So if you took that, they would control all of Byzantium. So would you say that Constantinople is kind of like the king's landing of that age? Precisely. So it's like, if you have control of Constantinople, you're going to control the empire. Now, what we'll, we see later is that's not necessarily true, um, because when the Crusaders take uh, Constantinople in 1204, you get Byzantines setting up outside of Constantinople. So it's not as if you have to have it in order to control everything, but it helps. Let's put it that way. Not to mention the fact that they, it was an incredibly wealthy city. And so taking it, obviously, you got your hands on, you know, huge amounts of, well, booty. So, so the Umayyads, this, they, they're looking at Constantinople and they're thinking, this is a great, huge prize. It's been around already for a few hundred years and they're thinking, we're going to take it. Uh, how, how, do they, how are they going to go about, about doing this? Yeah, so you have two different sieges that happen. So the first one is uh, a five-year siege uh, between 674 and 678. At this point, things aren't going so well for the Byzantines and they're in a bad position. So the... Muslims show up and they think they're going to siege the city and the city's going to fall and they're going to get it. Um, But what happens to them is, according to the uh, Byzantine historian uh, Theophanes, there's a certain Kalinikos who shows up and he's actually from uh, Heliopolis in Syria. So this is Baalbek, which is now in Lebanon. So like some people, he chose when the Muslims took over these regions to flee to the Byzantine Empire because he didn't want to live under this new rule. And he brought with him what is described as that he manufactured a naval fire which which he kindled the ships of the Arabs and burnt them with their crews. In this way, the Romans came back in victory and acquired the naval fire. So this is what you see in the show as well. Now, I've always been curious about Greek fire. Do we have any idea what it was or any any? idea of what it like exactly what it did yeah this was not stuff you wanted to mess with um we're not exactly sure what it was because the byzantines realized that this was super effective we'll talk about the second siege in a second and how effective it was there as well basically this seems to have been some sort of uh petroleum based uh product basically it was liquid it was known actually by western commentators as greek fire but that's not what the byzantines referred to it as they referred to it as sea fire or ocean fire and basically you would shoot it in siphons from ships onto other ships that were coming against you and it would go whoosh and we're not but we don't know precisely what was in it because they wouldn't tell us because obviously they don't want other people going around and making the same thing and using it also so that's super cool and scary uh especially if you were on that ship and suddenly the stuff started burning you and there's no way to put it out uh what about the second uh the second uh, weapon or the second uh, defense measure that Tyrion comes up with this chain that he wants to build across the across the harbor. What, uh, what do you know the the Byzantine story with the chain? 
So the second siege of Constantinople was some years later in uh, 717-718. Uh, and so this is the Umayyads again. So after having been torched, they kind of gave up for a while. Um, but then they decided to try it again. Um, they had some idea that they were going to get help from the Byzantines themselves. That Yeah, that didn't happen. Instead, the Byzantines, again, decided to burn them and also employed the use of this chain that we were talking about. So to quote uh, Theophanes again, they say... So straight away, the pious emperor sent against them, so this is the Abide armies, the fire-bearing ships from the Acropolis, and with divine help, set them on fire, so that some of them were cast up burning by the seawalls. Others sank to the bottom with their crews, and others were swept down flaming as far as the islands of Oxea and Plataea. As a result, the inhabitants of the city took courage, whereas the enemy cowered with fear after experiencing the efficacious action of liquid fire, for they had intended to beach their ships that evening by the sea walls and set their steering paddles upon the battlements. And then when he goes on to say, that same night, the pious emperor stealthily drew up the chain on the Galata side. So there is, this is going across the Bosphorus, in other words. The enemy, however, thinking that the emperor had drawn it aside with the view of entrapping them, did not dare move in and anchor. So, in other words, this chain was basically, the idea was that it was supposed to be used as some sort of, you know, defensive mechanism so that people couldn't move into the Bosphorus. And there are a number of occasions where the Byzantines are known to have employed this, or at least have said to have employed this. And so you see, just like in Game of Thrones, where Tyrion, you know, draws the chain in, and in that case, traps the ships. And so then they can be burned at that point, right? So in this instance, clearly that was what they were afraid was going to happen. That didn't happen, but that was what they thought. So they actually sail, end up sailing away. This is, of course, after they've already been quite badly burned up. So in a way, you wonder if George R.R. R. Martin read this and thought, hmm, it would actually be a lot cooler if we could just completely torch Stannis's navy, essentially. So the chain in both instances plays a very important role. In the one instance, sort of steering the army away, and in the instance in Game of Thrones, obviously trapping them and making for a cool description in both, of course, print and naturally television. So we've got Byzantines 2, Umayyads 0 at this point. Do the Umayyads come back for a, another try? So no, the Umayyads do not come back for another try. Uh, there were various reasons for this. So the caliph at the time of the second siege, uh, Suleiman, uh, who did not himself go to uh, Constantinople, he sent his brother and he was hanging out waiting for Constantinople to fall, but he himself personally did not attend. He died. And so that kind of ended that, at least from obviously his point of view, since he wasn't around to continue to do this. But I mean, the army was really decimated at this point, not just the Umayyad navy, but also the uh, the people on land who were forced to basically forage on all kinds of horrible things. Uh, we have sort of descriptions. This is sort of a trope, though. We have to be careful with this because frequently in sieges, you'll hear these descriptions of people having to eat all kinds of things that they shouldn't, such as uh, when the Crusaders are sieging Antioch in 1097-1098, and they describe eating shoe leather. You know, so this is often something that you see appearing. But in any case, it's clear that the Umayyads were not in a good position and indeed were not interested in trying to expend the resources. I mean, you get the sense, given the number of decades that are between both of these events, the amount of effort and money and everything that would have had to have happened in order for them to come and actually do this. Because keep in mind, there's 
a whole bunch of Byzantine territory between the Umayyad army and Constantinople. So they can't just hang out for and not have to worry about the Byzantine army showing up uh, and, you know, doing things. They actually have to go ship everything there. They have to camp out in front. They have to have their ships. They have to have supplies. And that's just not something you can do that easily. So let me ask you another question about naval battles. Uh, I'm watching a lot of black sails here these days. So I'm watching uh, pirate ships firing cannon at one another. And I think a lot of us think about naval battles that way. But back in the ancient world, I'm not really quite sure what they looked like because we don't have cannon. I, the Byzantines have Greek fire, but I'm picturing people like staring at each other on ships across the water and you know, throwing rocks. Like, what was what was an ancient naval battle like? Uh, probably not so great. The interesting thing is we don't really know what all of this material looked like. So there's a lot of debate, actually, for example, Greek fire. How do you precisely take a siphon and shoot it from one ship to another? How does that work exactly? There's a famous depiction of it happening in a manuscript isn't super helpful. <laughs> um, there's been some experiments where people have sort of tried to see if they can make this work. But I mean, basically, we just don't have a lot of information. I mean, one of the difficulties we have, and you heard me reading directly from Theophanes, that he's describing this to people who either have a pretty good idea about what this is looked like or you know, at least have a frame of reference that we don't have. And so for him, it's not necessary to be like, let me pause a moment and make an excursus to tell you what the siphon looked like or to tell you how this worked precisely. So we have to, what we have to do is we have to look at these texts and sort of like what we saw last week with the Scythians, kind of try to draw out of them maybe what precisely was being meant. And so there's a lot of debate and discussion, for example, about what Greek fire is and how precisely it worked and how we should categorize Greek fire. We do know that, you know, there was certainly things like people would huck incendiary devices via from catapults from one ship to another. Obviously, you read these descriptions here. It's very short, but presumably very devastating. So there's certainly, we know that there was a lot of sort of different uh, incendiary devices that people were using. Uh, also in land warfare as well, incendiary devices get used. And there's some question about whether or not Greek fire should be considered part of all of these incendiary devices or whether it's actually something that's just coming out of a siphon. So different people have argued about all these things. And a lot of that's because, you know, as I say, we just don't have a lot of the information. Finally, I, I know that you do a lot of research into early Islamic studies. Uh, do we have anything at the OI from the Umayyads or of that period? Uh, so we have uh, material that uh, includes from uh, excavations, uh, for instance, from the site of Kerbet al-Karak in uh, modern Israel. Uh, so we have material from uh, from the Umayyad period. Uh, we have things from the site of Medina Tabu in uh, Egypt uh, that dates to that period. It can sometimes be difficult to give precise dates because, of course, material culture doesn't change with dynastic changes. So that means that, you know, you can't always say, oh, this is a Mayad versus, say, the Abbasids, who is the following dynasty. Uh, or even sometimes it's very difficult to tell the difference between Byzantine and early Islamic. Sometimes it can be a little bit uh, tricky, um, but we do have things which are dated to that period, uh, and some of them you can actually see on display. Well, thanks for talking to me today, Tasha. This has been uh, awesome, super informative, and uh, and really cool. Uh, learning about all these naval battles, uh, great chains, and uh, and wildfire, Greek fire, and uh, see how 
they've been referenced by authors uh, through the ages. You love a good story. At the OI, we have one of the best. Become a member and join the conversation. For more information, visit oi.uchicago.edu slash member.